Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss airplane movies, and that is movies on airplanes, not the airplane movies. <laughs> we talk to Daniel Hill about the Environmental Defense Fund, Open Door Climate, and Career Advice. And finally, we're talking about energy a little bit today. So let's talk about lightning. A single lightning bolt unleashes five times more heat than the sun. Wow. Yeah, that's Bolts crazy. are released. They superheat the air to almost 30,000 degrees centigrade. Wow. Yeah. Also, like 54,000 Fahrenheit. So there you go. Just in case you have to Fun fact I wouldn't be able to tell you how hot the sun is. Also, <laughs> power unleashed by lightning bolts is equivalent to detonating a ton of TNT. That's crazy. Yeah. And sometimes people survive getting hit by those. That's, that's they do. Something. I've met people. That's really crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, you know. People <laughs> hit that music. We are working with Sierra Talaferro over at the Green Obsidian to highlight a few of the individuals that she is highlighting for our Black History Month. Today, we're highlighting Dr. Tiara Moore who is the founder of Black in Marine Science, which is a nonprofit aimed to celebrate Black marine scientists, spread environmental awareness, and inspire the next generation of scientific thought leaders. BIMS aims to promote diversity in the sciences that is imperative and necessary to ensure the next generation has a chance to participate and be included in climate and ocean justice for the future. Check out this and more at The Green Obsidian on Facebook or LinkedIn. Alrighty, folks, we are doing our own sponsorship today. So 30 seconds for Nick to finish. If he doesn't make it in 30 seconds, he loses. I don't know what, but he just loses. Ready? Go. Laura, are you tired of locking yourself out of your house and not being able to get back in? (laughs) Yes. Because here we have a new solution for you today. It's called New House. And uh, what happens is when you lock yourself out of your house, you just you just move into a new one. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely new. It's set up. It's got everything you need, including keys. And when you get yourself locked out of that, we have New House too. So don't worry. There's always something for everyone in New House. Do you lose all your stuff? Yes, we take it. Wow, that was like 20 seconds. Incredibly. I only have 30 seconds to get the thing in. Come on, what are you gonna do? <laughs> you really, right, well, if I ever go long, you should just say time. Yes. Out of loser today. Okay. <laughs> oh, let's get to our segment. Sounds great. No, no one else watches the crappy airplane movies. I'm the only one. No, some of them aren't crappy. Like when I went to, oh, down to Texas, they had yeah. The Office on it. And so I'm like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. So I watched The Office. We're on Delta. Delta United. Okay. Yeah, I just flew Delta to Hawaii and they had 157 movies. Yeah. Just about all of them awesome. Or at least that's worth right. watching. Yeah, yeah, worth watching. I shouldn't say that they're bad. There's like there's a certain kind of movie that's fantastic for airplanes because it's hard to hear. So like in my mind, it's like, oh, I can watch any action movie ever made and I got it. Like I don't have to hear every single word. I can get distracted and come right back to it and there's no loss of plot. It's when you get to like the um, yeah, more serious ones where you have to pay attention the whole time. I'm out. I can't do those on a plane. I can't. I can't do the ones that might make me cry. I tried to watch Up on an airplane one time. Oh, jeez. Oh, like, gosh. No. That's the saddest movie. It world. was like it hadn't been out very long or something like that. I didn't know that it was a sad movie and I'm just bawling on the airplane. I'm like, okay, this is weird. 
Gosh, I hear this the theme song, like the song at the beginning of that movie, and I tear up. Like it's it is <laughs> oof, like who made that movie? Like that guy is just that person, excuse me, geez. <laughs> oh brutal. I I I hate movies like that where they're like, we made this just to make you cry. Just to make you cry. I, I won't yeah. watch any dog movies. No, no, no. I watch it. Can't do it. I swear. Like there was a there was a movie with um freaking what's his name Spider Man Tom Holland, and there's like a dog that and it's just fine. It's totally fine. And the dog gets killed. I'm like, why on earth are we doing this? It's just like we have to kill the dog. It's like it's like they're like someone in Hollywood's like, we got a dog in the movie. Are we killing it? Well, of course we are. Why wouldn't we? We have to kill every dog. Killing the dog uh, or its best friend. You know, like its owner, its its other friend, like fox and the hound like we're gonna it's just so sad yeah what are we doing here folks come on let the dog live i know why can't dogs have happy lives um justice for dogs my goodness the other one warhorse that movie good god it was just like (laughs) okay get ready bring a whole box of tissues with you and you're gonna cry and then you're gonna pull it together and then you're gonna start crying again (laughs) and then it was terrible yeah sam was like i feel you on that <laughs> yeah I, I saw it in theaters and it's just like i need a box of tissues yeah because i'm dying <laughs> no you're just crying like, into your pocket who made this <laughs> i think it was world war one and they had soldiers oh. with the cavalry and so this dude bonded with this horse spoilers and then the horse like runs into barbed wire it was, it was awful. Oh my god! Yeah, it, was, it was awful. It was, it was a good movie. Eyes of this horse, and it, you know, the, through the travesties that this horse endured, and then it's just, ugh. <laughs> oh. Oh yeah. my gosh! No, I am not watching that. I, no. I, I just watched All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, and it's good. It's funny though because I, I still compare every war movie to Saving Private Ryan, and it's just yeah. nothing compares to that. <laughs> yeah. It's unfair. It's unfair. But yeah, it's good, but it's like two and a half hours long. It probably could have been two hours long. There's a lot of that happening in movies these days. It's just, you know, tighten up the story. The Batman, another great example of just a movie that's way too long for no reason. It's like, can we oh, cut out? I couldn't even try it. I watched for like five minutes. I was like, no. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's your genre. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, Batman, I love, 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 love. the. It's just not Robert Pattinson? Michael Keaton one. I love... Yeah the dark night all that stuff but this new one i was like bored to tears before That's he funny. started <laughs> i was kind of neutral on it like i loved the chase scene i thought uh what's his face colin farrell as the penguin was great that whole chase scene with the cars was awesome i loved that but yeah it was just uh, so long paul dano was great but it was long it was very long i'm like why are we still doing this like i don't even feel like you know Anyone wants to sit through the last half hour of the movie. You're like, why isn't it over yet? Just let it be over. I didn't want to sit through the first half hour of the movie. I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it was too It was important to like have movies come out in the theater because once you're there, like some people will walk out in the beginning, but mostly, you know, you're yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. The long haul. But now if your movie debuts on streaming, like you really got to hook people <laughs> right away. Yeah, Right away. Yeah. That is true. And it's because I did see it in theater, so I couldn't have walked out. I mean, because it's like you can't walk out because that's like 
you paid money for this. $120 for your, to get in your popcorn to get in there. So you're going to stay. <laughs> well, there's also this like, I love it when you, when you watch a bad movie and I can think of a few right off the top of my head, like the worst movies I've ever seen. Ring 2, for example, a horror movie where people literally, the entire theater laughed at a scene that was supposed to be scary. Everyone's laughing and you know it's a bad idea. That's when things have gone horribly wrong. But then like afterwards, you're trying to justify the fact that you thought it would be good. You're like, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. You know, it's not, it's not, it could be worse, you know. I mean, like you know, the acting was fine. You know, it's not bad. You know, but if you didn't pay for it, if it was free, it's like that movie sucked. Is what you would say. It's just, oh, I love how we do that. Yeah. Well, to tie back to the airplane movies, so we did watch one movie called Minari on the airplane, and mm-hmm. uh, I'd love to just make a little plug for this movie because it is adorable. It's kind of environmental. It's about a Korean family that moved to I forget what state it is, uh, somewhere in the plains, oh, yeah. and by this farm. And so they're like, you know, farming and there's some land stuff and then some environmental disasters and things happen, but it's a movie where not a whole lot happens, but the relationship between the people and the family. So like this crass grandmother moves in with them and the little kid is just like, I hate her. I don't like her. And it's just, it's very endearing, highly worth watching, but you can catch that one on Delta. (laughs) Shameless plug. Delta, give us money. Um. (laughs) Yeah. But I think we've, jammed on about movies long enough yeah i think so all right let's get to our interview then hello welcome back to epr today we have daniel hill the senior manager of innovation fund with the environmental defense fund on the show welcome daniel thank you so much for having me nick so the work that you do um, is at the intersection of climate change and innovation and entrepreneurship it's really cool and i also love like the open door uh, climate initiative you have and i can't wait to talk about that but first what is the Environmental Defense Fund? The Environmental Defense Fund is a global environmental nonprofit that's been around for 50 plus years now. And they do just a range of advocacy on behalf of the environment. So science, policy, corporate partnerships, kind of the spectrum of ways that we can advocate on behalf of the, the environment. And we've been operating in multiple regions now for quite some time and really kind of in the past couple of years, really taking more of a, a people focus to the work, which I think is an exciting direction that I think a lot of folks need to go. Okay. So what do you mean by people focus? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really easy sometimes to get caught up in the policies and the technologies and the science and sometimes lose a little bit of sight of like the people that are either affected by those things or driving those things. So the work has started to shift a little bit more towards, you know, what can we do more with community groups? What can we do more on equity and justice that these policies that we're talking about really bringing voices to the table early on in the process? So a bigger focus on not only how does this affect people, but also how can people get more involved throughout the process? Oh, yeah, that's great. And how did you get there? How did you find the fund and then get a job? So I started a nonprofit years and years ago called Green Impact Campaign. And it just kind of came out of my own personal frustration. I went to school to study energy. I did not feel like I knew what that meant when I got out of college. Like, what does a job in energy look like? And on my first internship, I learned how to do an energy audit for a commercial building. And I remember in the first couple of weeks, I was like, this is super important to know. And like, these are real skills. And then in the same breath, I I asked my manager at the time, like, 
What about small businesses? Like, there's a bunch of those out there that could be a huge collective impact. And he kind of laughed in my face, and you know, it hurt. Sure, it hurt, but no, it was it was like a really important kind of step for me to look more into small businesses. Anyway, fast forward, and I started this nonprofit that trained students to do energy audits for small businesses specifically. Um, so kind of like this experiential learning opportunity for students that can't afford to take the time to do a full internship, aren't studying energy necessarily, just like a really simple way for them to learn how to do an audit and actually do one. So the larger goal was really kind of, can we empower the next generation of climate leaders that might not necessarily be on that track yet? And it turned out that some of the students going through my program were also going on to the Environmental Defense Fund's Climate Core Fellowship which embeds graduate students in large companies to work on sustainability projects. So we instantly became friends, obviously, because we had very similar models. And then after five years of running Green Impact Campaign, I was starting to look for my own kind of personal next step for my career. And it was just a very easy conversation to have because we were all kind of on the same page. So went and joined EDF to really kind of help grow and, and build out the corporate partnerships side of the climate corp fellowship yeah okay well yeah and that's really great and uh i always love seeing how people get to where they are because it's always different right you know so what do you do actually i want to take a step back actually so what goes into an energy audit and what is the purpose of it like when when you get the report what are you hoping to gain from it it's a wide range right so there's like home energy audits there's small business energy audits there's larger commercial all of them have the same goal of identifying ways to save energy and then understanding what's the cost associated, what's the savings associated with it, what's the payback. So it's like an assessment of where you're losing energy in cost standpoint for a lot of businesses and then ways to actually improve your energy efficiency. So when I used to do consulting and, and work on these larger commercial buildings, you know, there would be tens and dozens of pages of reports that I'm convinced no one read. Like there's no way. <laughs> right. There's no way. There's no way anyone read those. Right. But they would flip to the one page that showed like the breakdown of the savings and they would pick a couple and be like, great, let's go with those. Yes. Um, but for people with with home energy audits, usually it's a little more simple where it's like, you know, you got these light bulbs you can change out, put this filter on, upgrade your thermostat to this, and you might save, you know, 10% on your next bill. Right. Yeah, which you know is still impactful for families. And- absolutely, absolutely, uh, especially especially small businesses too. I mean, that was the big thing we were seeing on average: small businesses saving twenty percent, and that's huge for a small business. One hundred percent, yeah, because it's it's already a challenge. Like owning a small business is hard. Yeah. So anything you can do to help that, yeah, that's great. And so, so but you're not the, the uh, you're at EDF now, and you're working with the Innovation Fund. So, what's your role there, and what is that? Yeah, the Innovation Fund is. It's very near and dear. Um, So I actually helped EDF create the Innovation Fund and and built it. A lot of it came from my own experience as a social entrepreneur and being part of different incubators. But the main idea behind it was, you know, corporations have internal innovation labs, right? Can we find new products, new services, new ways to kind of have improvements in our business line? So we basically took that concept and translated it inside of an environmental nonprofit. So like, can we find creative new ways to advocate on behalf of the environment in more effective ways or more kind of cutting edge ways? So there's kind of two sides of it. One is we do quite a bit of 
just kind of capacity building. So training people on design thinking and prototyping and just new ways of brainstorming ideas and new ways of testing them. And then we also run an actual lab where we're giving out some funding so that people can pilot projects. We can kind of give them support throughout. But it's been really incredible to see, you know, I, I think over the past three years, we've had somewhere around 100 new ideas that got generated. And around 40% of those have advanced to some kind of pilot, which is awesome to see. But it's just interesting to see kind of the range of how people take that, right? So sometimes it's a new way to, to do communications or marketing. Sometimes it's more like boots on the ground, like can we do a community training program? Sometimes it's just taking existing science and translating it more into a commercial setting and, and testing that out. So it's been exciting to kind of see these ideas just kind of grow out of nothing and then just see staff just take over, which is awesome. Yeah. And truthfully, it's great you're in a place that encourages that because that can be a really daunting thing to try to pitch a new idea to you know the, your company. Because sometimes you know initiative, innovation, it can be scary. So Absolutely. what suggestions would you have for people trying to do that exact thing, pitching a new idea? And then we'll get into some more of that innovation and how you get sparked by that. But how do you get the courage to do that? Yeah, I'm going to lead with a book recommendation. Actually, there's a book called Start Within that does a great job of kind of talking about how to take a idea and kind of move it through your organization to get it to get it realized. And a lot of what I've learned was was from that. But I think a lot of it is understanding. Okay, what are the priorities for the organization, and how can I align whatever idea I have to one of those so that it's not necessarily a new idea and a new goal for the organization, but it's just, here's a new way to advance a goal that we're already working towards. I think if that's not there, it's really hard to push something through. The second thing I always say is the best thing you can do is kind of make it extremely challenging for someone to say no to an idea. And the the best (laughs) way to do that is show them more than tell them, right? So like do anything you can to like test things out or talk to potential stakeholders and hear feedback directly from them. I built a an entrepreneurship workshop for Climate Core. And one of the things I did was just held like a really quick and easy webinar to just gauge, you know, how many people are interested in this, what topics are they interested in. And that's what I kind of took and, and built a bit of a case around was, you know, clearly there's a demand here. Clearly there's an interest in these topics. We can really benefit from doing this. And that's a lot more effective to get someone to agree to something instead of just, hey, I have this idea. I think we could do this. I think we could do that. So really just kind of showing wherever possible. But I mean, those are the two big ones, I think, just aligning it and then showing as much as you can. Yeah. And I think it's a really great point you made too, because it's just making it harder to say no. Doesn't mean you can't say no. Doesn't mean you won't get a no. But you know, planning it is a lot better than just winging it and be like, hey guys, guess what? Innovation, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And and I also think timing is huge, right? Like understanding when your budget cycle is, understanding when new projects might even be heard. And, you know, a lot of people I think here like, oh, well, we've tried that before, but it didn't work out. But like asking, like, okay, well, why didn't it work out? And then understanding like what's different about this. So yeah, it's it, it is a little bit of an art in a sense, I would say, more than more than a science a lot. Yeah. But you know, I'm glad that we're talking about it because it's <laughs> it's actually really cool. And you say like what, 40% of the ideas you get have, have been pushed forward. So yeah. How do you decide, you know, what to go with and what to kind of maybe Send back to the drawing board. Yeah, I talk about the innovation fund as a way to democratize innovation within the organization, right? Like 
it's getting beyond just that typical kind of chain of command of this person has to say yes, then this person, then this person. And part of that is our entire review committee is actually comprised of staff from across the organization that are not at the higher levels. So it's much more cross-cutting, a lot of representation, both in terms of levels of staff, but also just areas of work. And then we just go through multiple rounds of kind of evaluating the ideas. There's a rubric that's scored against. And I would say, you know, nine out of 10 times, it's been the top ideas that have come out of that process are the ones that have received funding. And those that haven't, it's just because, you know, there was a, an issue that happened since the application to the actual decision. So a lot of it is trying to use that also as a, as a way to kind of train up and give staff opportunity to evaluate new ideas and see other ideas that are going on and really kind of making it more of that so that it's, it's not just the same old hierarchy, you know? Right. And so that, I guess that in my mind is an act of giving ownership to junior staff to give them the opportunity to show you what they can do. Is that been kind of what you've seen with the program? Yeah, I think so. You know, we've been hearing really cool stories of people that have, you know, even slightly switched roles or even gotten promotions because of, you know, they could prove, hey, I led this project. I, you know, had a great idea. I followed it through. It had great results. So I think that side of it is really working. You know, the staff empowerment side is really exciting. And then we also just hear a lot of people say, even if they lightly interact with the fund, if they submit an idea, but they don't get accepted, that in itself, we've heard from more junior staff, like, I understand of the framework to present my idea now. I got it on paper for the first time. Like, I'm not as afraid to talk to my manager about a new idea. There's just a lot of kind of softer skills in a way I think that are are coming out that were almost unexpected when we started this. Yeah. And, you know, your desire to connect with people is really, really cool. And, you know, just reading through your bio and, and seeing what you're working on. Um, so I have to give you the floor to talk about Open Door Climate, as I think it's really, really neat. So what is that and how did that come about? Yeah, thanks. I've been working in the climate space for 10 years now. And just over the years, I, I get a lot of kind of cold requests on LinkedIn saying, I've been thinking about working in the space. I would love to just have a coffee chat with you, just understand like what it's like and what you do and what day to day looks like. and. I think at some point I, I said, you know, like this is a little passive in a sense. And I'm sure there's more people out there that are wanting to have these conversations. So I just posted like an open door policy on, on LinkedIn one day and just got flooded with requests of people saying like, yeah, I'll, I'll take you up on it. And I think I might've spoken to 50 people in, in three weeks and it was just, wow. I mean, I was emotionally exhausted, I would say, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I really learned a ton and, and it was so interesting to hear people, what they were struggling with. And one of the top things they, they kept saying was, I'm just struggling to find people in the space to talk to, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you think about it as, let's say I wanted to get in the education field or the healthcare field, I'm sure I would do a bunch of Googling. I'm sure I would listen to podcasts. I would do a lot of research on my own, but ultimately I'm going to want to talk to like a teacher. I'm going to want to talk to a nurse to understand like, just tell me what it's like. How did you get in there? That personal story is really impactful for someone trying to get into a new space. So that was kind of the idea was, you know, can I tap other sustainability and climate professionals to do the same? Can they just have an open door policy? Because there's all these people 
whether it be the tech layoffs or just people that have crippling climate anxiety at this point that want to work on it. And we keep saying we need, we need everyone, we need everyone. But I think there's this challenge, I think, for people to really kind of expand their network. So yeah, it's been a couple, couple months now. I think around a hundred climate professionals have have volunteered, opened their door. And it's just kind of been this really cool growing movement on on LinkedIn of people being willing to talk and a lot of people taking them up on it. And you just hear stories of people getting interviews, people getting jobs to show like that human connection, I think is really needed in that transition. Yeah, absolutely. And just a friendly reminder to all of our listeners, you can reach out, you can go check out the uh, Open Door Climate. It's there for you. Okay. So if you're interested in that, please do check it out. It's really, really cool. So I had to get that plug in there for you. But what are your hopes for that in the future? You know, you've got the things, you've got it set up now to kind of start doing this. Where do you hope it goes? I mean, I'll give you the honest answer. I have no idea. I, <laughs> I don't think I never, I never set out to build this. So it's been uh, just such a cool experience to see this community grow out of nothing. I shouldn't be surprised. You know, the climate space, it's, it's different from other industries where, you know, if, if this person gets a sale, maybe that person won't get a sale. When you talk to people working in the environmental space, they want as many people joining in as possible. So the community of professionals that have just like volunteered and taken their own free time to talk has been so cool. And I think right now it's just kind of continuing to grow that community, continue to have more of those conversations and see what comes out of it. I don't think I have concrete plans for what's going to happen next, but each day when I, you know, log on to LinkedIn and just see a random person that's that's posting it, it's been a really cool experience. That's really, really awesome. So you know, a lot of what we talked about is really kind of how to be, how to do well in this career path. And there's a lot of good advice throughout. So, but, you know, focusing on that specifically, like what key pieces of advice would you give for someone who's looking to get into climate or, uh, climate or environmental careers? I think part of it is understanding, and maybe this isn't just specific to climate, but I think it's understanding what, what you're really strong at or what you're really good at and, and what you're really interested in. And not shying away from that. I think there's a little bit of a misinterpretation that if you're going to work in climate or sustainability, it has to be a technical role. You have to be a climate scientist that knows, you know, how carbon sinks work and how it gets released. But the reality is there's just so many jobs that are like, we're just looking for a really good project manager. We're looking for a really good communication specialist. And those skills that are just happen to be applied to climate are what's really needed. So I think for those that are transitioning in, it's not so much how do I learn the technical side of the environmental space. It's more of how can I use what I do know and what I'm really good at and apply that at you know a company that maybe it's a climate tech startup that's just looking for a really good comms person. And I think that can that can go a long way. I by no means want to minimize how challenging it is to break into a new industry. I know that's a, a struggle and I've talked to enough people to understand that it is really, really tricky, but I think it's more of not letting the technical side be a barrier to at least looking into it. Exactly. And there's, there's always room for growth too, even if that's where you start, but it's not where you want to be. You yeah, can find absolutely. your way over there. So yeah, it's great, great advice. And so now it's time for the part of the show we call Field Notes, which is where we talk to our guests about memorable, memorable moments they have doing their jobs. And we are encouraging our listeners to share their stories using the hashtag Field Notes so we can read them on air. 
But I have to tell you, yours is so great. I love, <laughs> uh, I love this story because I think you and I share a really good lens on, you know, everybody is just a person, right? Everyone, everybody is human, no matter who they are or what they are. So you had an interaction with a COO that went kind of a, a unique way. So why don't you, why don't you tell us about that story? <laughs> You know, when I, when I, when I was putting that in, I was like, don't tell that story. Don't tell that story. And of <laughs> course I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Yeah. yeah. So my, my first job out of college was at a green building startup. I was, I think I was just like really nervous. Like, oh man, this is a professional setting. Like I want to do a really good job. I don't want to say anything stupid. I don't want to like mess up. And my boss happened to be this just super old school guy. Like he came out of retirement to take this role. And he like had a very, very strict viewpoint on like whether people should have facial hair in the office, like always wow. tucked in shirts, like pretty by the book in that way. So me being like this brand new person in, in the workforce, it was very intimidating in a way. And like, I just didn't trust a lot of, of a lot of my own thoughts at times. So we were, we were having just like a one-on-one -on -one meeting in his office. Cause he was, he was my direct boss at the time. And we were talking about like utility rates or utility, something involving meters. And I'm sitting across the desk from him and he has this whiteboard across his room. So he gets up from his chair to go to the whiteboard and just rips just a very large fart, just like <laughs> a very sustained from the chair to the whiteboard. <laughs> and yeah. it's one of those things and he just doesn't acknowledge it, right? Like there's no acknowledgement of it. And then the yeah. rest of the meeting, I don't know what he said after that. I can't, I can yeah, tell you right, one thing course. he said after that. Cause the rest yeah. of the meeting, I just sat there being like, did it actually happen? Did I imagine <laughs> that? Like, yeah, right. Cause this, he's not saying anything. Yeah. He's not saying anything. There's no way that that's just happening. You just, nope. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot to reflect on after the meeting, but <laughs> I kind of had this realization after it that like, oh, he's just, he's just some guy. Like, he's just a person he's human too. Like I'm not working with professionals. I'm working with humans. Like there's everyone is just kind of getting by and, and being, being a person. And I think for some reason that like really broke down a wall for me where I didn't feel quite as like tense and I felt a little bit more relaxed and I kind of noticed my personality started coming out a little bit more. And I used to, I would trust my own opinions a little bit more. Right. And it also helped that you know, I came to found out that he had no idea what he was talking about because he was coming just coming from a completely different space and and trying to fake it for longer than he should have. I think so. Right. It was it was like a really <laughs> yeah. I'm shocked that it was such a learning opportunity, but uh, no, that's great. it was it was a big big turning point that early in my career to be like, okay, maybe I know more than I think, or maybe I should trust myself a little more than I thought. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's a brilliant point. I mean, um, you know, I've worked with people all over the place and I remember having, there's a guy I knew I worked with who was really, really just, you know, easygoing, charming. The second the CEO showed up, just ghost white. I'm like, what are you doing? Go talk to him. He's like, he's like, well, I can't. I'm like, okay, well, I will go talk to him. This, yeah, he's just yeah. a person, right? It doesn't matter. You can connect with people in so many yeah. different ways. So I love that messaging. I'm glad that guy's fart can bring you... <laughs> Hey, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's uh, farting to save the world. There we go. Um, so uh, one other thing I thought was really interesting. Uh, you're not a journalist, but you are a tracker in the truest science, a scientific form. <laughs> you 
tracked what makes you happy for two years. And that seems like so wild. So how did that work? And what did you learn? Yeah, it was a really great experiment to do. Yeah, as you said, I'm I'm not a journaler. I've heard the benefits of journaling for years and years. And I always tried to do it, but I just couldn't get myself to do it. And then I got in this habit of doing these like 30-day goals where you know you would pick something up for 30 days and at the end of 30 days you would decide to kind of keep that or or not keep it. So like, you know, walk to work or not eat candy or whatever it was. But it still felt kind of like one-off. I didn't really understand if if it was helping or not in certain ways or if I really liked things. So I was curious to actually understand like, okay, these these like smaller habit changes that I'm doing, like what's actually making me happier and what's actually just me feeling a sense of accomplishment for doing something. Right. So I built just like a really basic Google form that at the end of the night, I would always fill out and I would just, you know, it was like 30 or so habits that I would do every day. You know, did I hang out with friends? Did I work out? Did I read? Whatever it is. And then I would just rate how my happiness level was for that day between one and 10. And then after a couple of months, I started to be able to see correlations of like, okay, this habit contributed, you know, 6.2% towards my happiness. And that was, that was really interesting. And I've, I've talked to people about it and they got really in the weeds about like the calculus of it. Like, right. Like, how are you sure? How do you the, know? The, yeah. yeah. The point was less of like, okay, the exact number might not be true, obviously, because it's so subjective, but like, it really did give me a good idea of, I need to prioritize these activities each day, or I'm an introvert. For me, a big one was like, what is my balance of socializing that kind of brings me happiness. So like, as an introvert, you kind of get that pressure of like, you should be hanging out with more people. You should be going to more functions. But like through this tracking, I learned like, actually there's a sweet spot. Like if I go hang out with friends, you know, two or three times a week, it's great. If I do more than that, I actually have kind of some diminishing returns, so to speak. So it was just a really good way to kind of like self-reflect, learn a little bit more about myself. There's so many top 10, you know, habits to be happier out there. And I think what I learned was like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's just, it's just self-reflection. That's how you understand what's going to affect you and, and what you need to prioritize. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, it's, you're an individual, right? You are yeah. not the same as everybody. There are, there can be trends that are true, but yeah, you are your own person. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, introvert, extrovert type person. And it's funny, we love to put things in boxes, right? You're either this or that. And the reality is exactly what you said, right? Like, two or three times a week for you to hang out with friends, you know, it might be a lot to somebody or not nearly enough to someone else. Um, So were there any other things like that that you learned along this process? Yeah, I think this is going to sound really small, but um, I learned that for me, if, you know, I think a big one is always reading, right? Like everyone, everyone's New Year's resolution. And there's just so many, like, I'd like to read more. I'd like to read more. But through this, I actually found out that, especially when it comes to like nonfiction and learning, I much more enjoy learning and acquiring that from podcasts over reading. Maybe it's because I'm a slow reader. Maybe it's because I like like the transition of of walking and listening. But like that was a really refreshing one for me because I that whole pressure of like you should be like that little voice of being like you should be reading more. You should be reading right, more. Right, right. <laughs> uh, kind of got a little bit more quiet because I was like actually I should keep listening to like more podcasts. Like that seems to be doing really well. So that's like a small one where, you know, again, like you, you hear over and over, like, this is a thing you should be doing, but you kind of got to understand like, yeah, I'm not a great reader. Maybe that's a problem. <laughs> Maybe I should just accept that and, and move on. But um, that was really interesting. 
I mean, I'll tell you that sleep was the biggest one. Like that is the biggest contributor to my happiness. If I don't get a good night's sleep, I like had no chance of having a, a good day in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the only other thing I'll mention is, you know, I, I opened this up and let some other people try it. And I don't remember how many, maybe it was between 50 and a hundred. And I was curious to look through, you know, what are their top habits? And I don't think anyone had the same top three. Like, again, just to kind of reinforce, like, it was really interesting that like everyone's was very different. And it was also very, very interesting to see like what people wanted to track uh, <laughs> things that I would just never thought about. Right. Right. The number of times I threw a football that didn't make my list. Yeah. I don't know why it's on yours. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think my, my favorite one and the most endearing one was like, did I hug whatever person's name today? Like yeah. specifically, did they give that person a hug that day? And I thought that was really endearing and really sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Well, it's funny. We talked a little bit about this too. I want to ask you more directly, the negative voice that we have in our head, right? The ones that oh, yeah, I have to read more. You have to do this more. You found a few ways to kind of quiet that voice. Do you have any advice for someone who maybe doesn't want to do like, you know, the, the blog every day or any other tips for kind of, you know, letting go of that negative voice? Yeah, I wish I had something more poetic, but I do think there's like that constant conversation between the voice in your head is not necessarily the truth. And I think it's really hard to sometimes distinguish between that. But I think that's where, you know, whatever your support is, whether that's your family or your friends or whatever, like understanding that not every time that that you have a thought or that they have a thought or, or whatever it is isn't going to necessarily be your truth and like really kind of giving yourself almost compassion towards that. Right. Like, I think that's another thing, right? Like we try to do these goals and then we don't achieve them perfectly. And then like, we just feel even worse at the end. But I think having that compassion towards either if it's an external goal or just like kind of battling that voice sometimes, I think it's something that gets overlooked is just like, being kinder to yourself when you're trying to work on self-improvement, right? Like that's the irony. Like (laughs) you're trying to, trying to be happier. You're trying to do self-improvement and instead like you're just bad talking yourself sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, Nick, you're better than this. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay to be this good. I don't need to be better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, this has been really great. We are running out of time, which is just such a bummer, but is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we let you go? Maybe just getting back to the environmental and and climate space. I, you know, I talked a little bit about kind of the people side of things. And I, I think that can't be stressed enough. I, I don't spend much time thinking about the technologies or the science just because I don't have much fear that like, that's not the problem. We're going to be, we have the things we need. We'll be able to get technologies. But I think the biggest obstacle is just the people and like implementing things and getting things done. So I think that's why I've dedicated a lot of my work towards working with people that then can enable the technologies, the science, the policies. But I think it's just something to keep in mind for for anyone that is thinking about a career or already working in the space is just the importance that people actually play in getting climate change mitigated and getting adaption. So I don't know. Maybe it's not so much a call to action, but maybe just my own personal motivator. And a lot of this is just how do we get people to do good things? Yeah. And it's a great, great point. And to that end, where can people get in touch with you? 
Yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm not on other social media platforms. So LinkedIn's, I guess, the only place. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, if people want to reach out to me, happy to find time to have a chat or send some resources their way if they're interested. Heck yeah. And uh, one last plug I'll give you for opendoorclimate.com. Go check that out too. So thank you so much, Daniel, for being here. I had a great time. Oh, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And that's our show. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody. Bye.